So what does the word intentional mean for you? It means projecting out into the future and building and then taking the steps and doing the work necessary to achieve the outcome that you've foreseen in the future. It means being pragmatic and realistic and optimistic, but all towards a goal of something you've seen in the future. Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Hey, everybody, and I appreciate you tuning back in. This is going to be a fun episode today. It's episode 289. And before I get into the guest bio, I want to give everybody just a quick update on a new resource that we have. So we have created an intentional growth financial assessment. And the reason we created this is we have been focused on growing out our fractional CFO services. It's been growing like gangbusters over the last six to 12 months because of how much people need help on their financials and organizing them in a way that allows them to make decisions today that allow them to chart that path to more valuable business and project it out like a private equity firm. We use the three financial statements to tie them all together so you can clearly see your distributions, your taxes, and what your decisions do today and how it either helps you grow a more valuable business or it detracts from it. And it all starts in the financials and it's 23 questions. You don't need your financials and it, it's based on these four areas of the financials. And then we kick out a score and then you get five videos that show what good looks like. So it's Pat and I walking through a case study. And I think people would really like it because we've had a lot of good feedback from it. The link's in the show notes. It's the Intentional Growth Financial Assessment. You can also find it on our website. So on to our guest today. I had an absolute blast. Our guest name today is Dr. John Schufeld, and I'm just going to read his bio because he's got a lot to it. And so Dr. John Schufeld, who he liked to say, it's John, he was an emergency and is an emergency physician and the Forbes book author of Entrepreneur Rx, The Physician's Guide to Starting a Business. A lot of times you hear, you know, doctors are not good business people and vice versa. However, John totally debunks that. In 1993, when John noticed that the ER was overcrowded with minor illnesses and injuries, he launched his first urgent care practice. And that business saw explosive growth expanding from one to 60 locations during his tenure and did over 100 million. Schufeld then founded around 15 companies, including NextCare Urgent Care, and then MeMD, used by more than 450 providers to virtually treat more than 6 million patients. Think telehealth, which we're now all familiar with, and lo and behold, it was sold to Walmart in 2021 because, yes, now everybody knows what telehealth is. And he also has Tribal EM, dedicated to improving the delivery of healthcare for Indigenous people. And John is also the business manager and founding partner of Empowered Emergency Physicians, where he continues to practice in, in his spare time, in quotes. And he had also started a VC firm that raised $20 million to invest in local healthcare startups. In addition to his medical degree, he has an MBA, a law degree, and a Six Sigma black belt. Holy buckets. Yes, you're probably going, that's a lot. However, John is a real dude, and he is straight and he, just a raw human being that I really, really enjoyed talking to because he even talks about how he almost flunked one class. He barely was making it out of school. And then he would look at all the things he has accomplished, like I just talked about. And I really enjoy 
how he talks about the evolutions he went through as he was scaling the the clinics and as he's been doing these different ventures. He even mentions how he talked about he fails forward and he learns and he continues to think of ideas. And John is very intentional and he talks about how he course corrects when he's not on the not on track, how he made the decision to sell the clinics to a private equity firm and how he how he made the decision to sell to Walmart when it wasn't just about only about the money. There was a lot of factors in. I just really enjoyed how John was able to describe with thought the decisions that he made and he did it on purpose, which is the entire purpose of this show. I think you're in for a real treat with this interview with John. Thanks so much, everybody, for tuning in. And I hope you enjoy this interview with John. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. John, how are you? You know what? I could not be better. Thanks. I mean, it's a beautiful day in Arizona. What could be better than that? Um, on that note, you said it. You're in Scottsdale. And I, I just gave a Vistage presentation like literally this morning. And uh, one of my friends is the members. And he's uh, he's literally he dialed in from Scottsdale. He's like, hey, Ryan, I'm not going to be at the presentation because I am I just don't want to be in Minnesota anymore. I'm like, well, I can't blame you. <laughs> so you're the yeah. smarter of yeah. the two of us. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm uh, I'm very looking forward to this podcast because when I when your agent had reached out and was talking about getting you on the show, I looked at your background, and a lot of times you see doctors and doctors and business people sometimes are separate, and you are absolutely not that. You are completely both. You're an entrepreneur at heart, and you've done a lot of things over the years, John. So why don't you just give us the flyby for the listeners of some of the background, some of the highlights, and we can go back and kind of unpack like the, the parts of the journey and and why you've been doing some of the things you've been doing. Sure. So I went to college, uh, undergrad at Drake, uh, not just a little bit south of you in uh, Des Moines, Iowa. was a sociology criminology major, but knew I wanted to go to medical school. I'm the kind of guy who barely passed grade school, barely passed high school, and finally found my, uh, found my ability to study in college. Went to medical school in Chicago, then did an emergency medicine residency right after that at a Southside hospital called Christ in Chicago. And it was a knife and gun club, best three years ever as far as training goes, and thought I'd be an academician my whole life, but took a job in Arizona about a year later, and as an ED medical director, emergency department medical director, and really just started noticing things of like, gosh, wouldn't it be cool if we could just improve this, or wouldn't it be better if we did it things this way? Looking back, I'd kind of been an entrepreneur as a kid, but then I just started thinking, wow, it would really be interesting if we did X. And the first thing was in urgent care. And, you know, urgent care is now are very passe, but in the early 90s, there weren't any. And so, you know, really took that and ran with it and developed a company called Next Care. And for, for about 17 years, you know, ran different emergency departments, practiced medicine full time. And then did this did the startup Next Care and grew that to about 100 million in revenue. So the Next Care was a, is 100 million in revenue. So the, in because when I was reading some of your bios, I was thinking that the the 60 locations, the urgent care that you that you built up was that. And so the the, the startup ended up being 100 million. Or were they both? Yeah. So, so that was so that was the startup was Next Care. It started off called Arizona Family and Urgent Care, 
until I heard somebody answer the phone. Thank you for calling Aw F U C. I'm like, well, that doesn't sound good. We better change the name. And so uh built that up over yeah, you can see where that went. Built that up over 17 years, made every mistake in the book. And you know, I'd always laugh. My only business course before that was typing in high school, which I which I nearly flunked. And so I went back and got an MBA at ASU and really enjoyed, really enjoyed the learning and and really just dove into it. So, you know, being an emergency medicine physician, I can pick my own hours, so to speak. So I'd, you know, go to school on the weekends and I'd work during the week and it, it just worked out well for, you know, my background and, uh, and I had a ton to learn. So it, uh, it suited me well. That's awesome. And what, and what are the things that, cause you've, you've been involved in 15 different companies. So you're, yeah, I was reading one of the, the books on the real man plan uh, and you've been doing a lot yet. You're also, I mean, the amount of time that you're spending in these different areas, you're obviously very efficient. So what are the other, uh, other ventures that you're also involved in? So I've been involved in a lot of small adventures along the way, everything from hot dog stands um, and yeah, there's a whole story with the hot dog stands to um, private autopsy. And I tried not to confuse the two, although sometimes it was difficult. So we did a private autopsy business way early where somebody could call up and say, hey, our loved one died. Can someone do an autopsy on them? And we'd send out a pathologist that day and do an autopsy. Next care was, you know, definitely a big one when I couldn't find a radiology uh, provider to read all these films from these urgent cares all over the country. I started the teleradiology business in about 2000 gosh, I don't know, five, four, and sold that in about 2016, I think. And so a lot of the things I did was were kind of very pragmatic in the sense that there's a kind of a method to the madness, even, even the ones that were ridiculous and didn't work out. At least they were thought of with like, okay, this would be cool. We need to do this because nobody else is doing it. So, I mean, I, I could go on and on with all the crazy dumb ideas I've had. But um, some of them have worked out. It's, it's, it's okay. You have enough. A couple have worked out. <laughs> it's you have enough crazy ideas. All you need is one, man. It's you buy lots of lottery tickets. You right. just need one. You know, I, I I'm excited to unpack this topic, John, with you because, you know, in the presentation I just gave or the the trainings that we do, it's this concept of knowing what you want from the business and why, and then growing value creates choices. And what I find. Very interesting. My dad and I and our family business were the same way. We're like a lot of entrepreneurs start their business because they found a need and then they wanted to fill the need because there was a passion or something that they were tied to. And I can kind of feel that from you. And then like halfway through the journey, they're flying this plane. Like, where are we going to land this? Like, what is the ultimate goal for that? And I'm curious, like where in that journey, you know, you talk about the 17 years at the, the urgency, uh, the emergency care, like where did you start to realize that you had to think more, or not more, you had to think also about the machine of the business as well as what you were providing. Was there a transformation there that slowly started to kind of take place or? There was, that's a great question. There was, and it seemed to be very incremental. Like I, I realized that running one urgent care was pretty easy. I mean, it was hard because they'd never done it before and it was a totally new venture and there was no book on how to do it. But then three urgent cares, well, that's a lot different than one. And then 10 urgent cares was a lot different than three. And all these incremental steps, by the time we got to 60 urgent cares, there was really a machine and a process there that we had to build the infrastructure. And what I loved about that business is, I'm, you know, you mentioned efficient, and I'm one of those people who I, my, the way I think, for better or for worse, is efficient. Like, I like going to the grocery store because I like to cook, and it's a game to me. Like, how quickly can I get through the grocery store, getting everything I need and getting out in the most efficient way possible? And that's kind of how I think. And so with NextCare, for example, 
you know, it was a real process that so we did everything we could to make it as efficient for our providers, but more importantly for the patients as possible. So, you know, what I've made the mistake of often is doing is, is basically we grow the business, then hire the staff, you know, base and then staff it up. But what I try to do over the years is let's build this thing to handle 100 patients a day uh, efficiently. And then when we're only at 60 or 50, we're just, we're screaming. And so that came to me, you know, probably about the, about the 10th urgent care, like, okay, this is good, but these are not one-offs. They have to be operated as a collective. And I, when I was over in Moscow, actually, and I went to the McDonald's over there and I'm like, wow, it's the exact same McDonald's as the one in Chicago or the one in, you know, Scottsdale, Arizona. How are they doing this? And I thought, well, if they can do it with McDonald's, I can do it with healthcare. So we started franchising urgent cares in 95 and no one had franchised healthcare until then. And there was a reason for that because it failed miserably. And I was a crappy franchisor, and we probably picked bad franchisees. Not bad franchisees, but franchisees who were after about two months, like, yeah, dude, I know more than you do. We don't need you anymore. And so, you know, after a couple of years, we basically parted ways, and some of them stayed next cares, and part of part of them went off and did their own thing. And I'm still close to, I'm close to all of them. I don't know if you've heard of the, the book, The E-Myth by Michael Gerber, but he actually brings up the story of McDonald's and how they were a real estate and investment company that happened to sell hamburgers. I don't know if that resonates with you at all it totally does and because I, I read that book and i thought i mean it's totally true i mean they they have great corner real estate and in next care the surgeon care company you know i kind of learned the hard way that we wanted to be on a corner that had a stoplight and good ingress and egress both ways and i'm like maybe we should turn this into a real estate company that happens to do urgent care now we weren't well capitalized enough to have the real estate i, I think i bought two of them and then leased them back but that clearly would be cool if it worked, but it wasn't, you mm -hmm. know, it wasn't the model. We, we used our capital to grow centers, not buy real estate. So we leased all the buildings. And it, almost well, but the concept is still relevant, right? Where I think what's so, so challenging sometimes for, for founders, even founders that grow very large, successful companies that have, that I've come across or been on the show, they get to, there's almost this transformation. I'm curious, going back to one of the questions, like when then slowly that happened, where like, Hey, I'm solving this problem, but I have to get good at running this machine in order to keep making the impact and the scale that I want. And like, is that when you got your MBA that you started to have that transformation? Did you sell the business prior to getting your MBA, or like, where where did the, that timeline? Well, I got I, I actually so I started the business in '93, and my MBA was '93 to '95, and then went back to law school in 2003 to 2005, and then I was in the business until 2010. Um, but, you know, I kind of learned, too, in the business that I'm a startup guy and the, and I like change and I like progress. and I like doing things differently. The day to day running of an existing business that's not metamorphosizing and not changing, adapting. That's not me. So what I learned with me, MD, which was a virtual medicine business. After about seven years, I hired a CEO who was a great operator day to day in the trenches, data driven, total rock star. And I like data, I like process, but that wasn't me. Well, it's super interesting. So what process did you go through for data gathering or what, to make the decision of when and how to hire the CEO? And here's here's some of the, the question behind that, John, is when people think about hiring a CEO, I think a lot of people go, well, that would be awesome. A lot of times the ego gets in the way, a lot of time that you know all the knowledge is in their head and or the third part is they can't afford it because they can't maintain their lifestyle through the distributions. Therefore, they can't afford the payroll. So there's like a lot of these variables that I think a lot of people get stuck on how to figure out. When you went through that process, what was it like? 
So the, the first one, let's talk about, because I think this is a big one. Let's talk about ego. You know, what, what I learned, and I always tell the story, I, I literally grew up failing. And so I never, I, I was never one of those fragile perfects who, you know, got knocked off the ledge and, and laid there. I would always like, so, okay, get back up. Because I was just so used to screwing this up, which was turned out to be a huge blessing, um, is particularly as an entrepreneur. And so if you can get out of your own head and let your, put your, get your humility gene up and your ego gene down, then all of a sudden you can realize, you know, you may not be the best one to run this day to day. And, you know, there are some founders who are, who are great operators. Bill Gates, you know, for a long time was a great operator. Obviously, Steve Jobs, particularly during the, you know, second Steve round. Jobs reboot, yeah. uh, who second round was a great, was a great operator. But then he, you know, he basically was grooming Tim Cook for this. But I think the the founder operators are rare that really can pull it off. Travis Kalanick, eh, not so much. Bezos um, did an okay job. You know, guy, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Bezos accepted certainly. <laughs> but, but you know where I'm going because I think if you really follow your passion and really can have a critical have a critical eye about what you're good at, and then get out of your own way. And if you're a great operator, great, stick with it. But I, I didn't think I was. If it was moving and changing, yep. But day to day, not me. So that part was easy. The, the, the money part actually was just kind of a time value of money equation in the sense that I knew I could be better. I was, I'd started another business and I knew I'd be better off running this business and paying the gentleman I hired even out of my own pocket mm-hmm. and not taking a dime out of the business because I knew it would grow better with him than mm-hmm. with me. You mentioned a couple of points of that you like startups, you like the metamorphosis and the evolution, and also that you're not a great operator. Those are very, those are, you're, those are rolling off your tongue right now, John. I don't know if it was always that easy for you to be that self-aware of those circumstances, or was there certain things that you went through to be clear on how, how clear you are with those statements? So in, with NextCare, you know, we went out and brought in, we went out and raised money in 2007, 2008. And we raised 50 million, 25 in debt um, from Goldman and 25 in equity. And when we were going through this process, a couple of the PE firms we, t- we looked at said, well, you know, we're going to bring in our own CEO. I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm, I'm the, you know, I, just, I, was, I was out of grad school, out of law school. Look at me, right? You're not going <laughs> to find somebody more qualified to do the, what I'm doing than me. Literally, I'm not, I didn't think I was bragging. I just, you know. It's I, a fact. Pragmatic. history at that point. <laughs> Exactly. And I'm like, and it, but I remember that sticking in the back of my head and I kept thinking, you know, maybe they're onto something. Maybe, maybe I'm not the guy to run this day to day. So the PE firm that we hired did not say that out of the gate. They were like, oh yeah, no, you're, it's all good. And I had a, we, you know, we had a president and she was awesome. But after in that two years from 2008, and we closed our deal on the Friday before Lehman Brothers <laughs> failed on Monday. I mean, literally skin of our teeth. And in that two years, it was a recession, and we just fought through everything. But I remember thinking that during those two years, like, yeah, this may not be for me. It's just, you know, the, the fun kind of was gone. Mm-hmm. And, and then I started thinking, and they were, I know they were thinking the same thing. You know, eh, maybe, you know, maybe she felt great on the board. But as far as operating this stuff, as far as CEO goes, there's probably somebody better. And I don't know if, who they hired, if they were better or not. But they certainly weren't any worse. <laughs> Again, that's uh, very humble of yourself. It, it takes, it, it just takes a lot of mental hard work to hold all of these concepts 
at the same time in your head, like, hey, I'm, I'm good at this. I did this, but then I also need to step back to keep it moving forward. It's just, I think it takes a hard time for someone, especially if they got a, a passion for why they started the business and the solution that they wanted to solve, making sure that they have the control over watching that come to fruition. Did you ever have any concerns that what you originally intended to do was at, at risk? I think by the time with NextCare, by the time we brought private equity in, it was a lot of the processes were so well ensconced that it would be hard to change. And they changed some of them after I left, but they'd be, they'd be hard to change. So I wasn't really worried about that. There's a business that I'm in now that I'd be a little worried it would change the culture. One of the things I've learned to do is really develop a culture from the ground up. Because when, it, when I haven't, or when the culture's been, been, you know, when there's been a chink in the armor, the place falls apart. And so I always worried, what I did worry about was they're going to lose the culture that we had. I mean, and, and I think they did a little bit, but part of that may have just simply been scale mm-hmm. and size because now the next care is, you know, 150 clinics. So when I find, when I think about you scaling these companies and building the machine and having the kind of evolution of your mindset, then there's this other stage to you, John, where people go, what's this thing worth? You know, what could I do with this? And, you know, you, you, you kind of alluded to, obviously, the fact that you raised private equity for a private equity firm came in and bought out the business. But there's a what happened between where you kind of said, hey, what's this worth? What do I how can I deal with this, especially in the medical world, which I think valuations are slightly different. I know that private equity is on a rampage now with clinics and what they're doing with roll ups, everything from eye care clinics to chiropractors to you name it. So, like, especially for the physicians that are out there, like realizing it's not just a job that this is an asset. We have a job that we get wages for, and there's an asset that we can have different things that we can do with. How did you come through that evolution and thinking about the company as an asset and exploring your options? Well, you know, it's funny. I really didn't in the sense that this was always, you know, I always go back and laugh. You know, the reason I was, the reason I started the urgent care is so I didn't, I didn't have these patients in the emergency department because I'd like sick and dying patients. And that sounds screwed up, but I like patients who are really ill. But all these people are coming in like, like probably don't need to be spending $1,000 to see me and, and the hospital fee when you can see it for $125 in an urgent care. And I didn't really think of it as a, hey, this is a great business. What can I get? Mm-hmm. You know, take cash off the table. I didn't, my mind did not hit there probably until about 2008 when we were raising money. I'm like, wow, this business is actually kind of valuable. And because I thought I, I'll just be in this business forever. And I'll just start other businesses and hire people to do my job and, and go on and do something else, which is kind of how the virtual medicine business started. So I'm not sure. I always counsel people now to think of the exit at the start, and I never did. And it's great advice. I just never followed it. You know, now starting the business, I'm, I start following it. But at the time, I didn't think that so way. So I, I, want, I want to pull this uh, thread because I think you're going to have some interesting insights on it, John, is that. So myself, been in the family businesses that I was in and my company now is, I again, passion of a topic that I want to solve. Like we want to educate as many entrepreneurs as possible right now or before it was revolutionized business technology, whatever it is that a lot of entrepreneurs start. And then I like to call that kind of business, like it's a lifestyle business, even though we were doing 20 million, it's like, it's how much money can we pull out of this business? It's an income, even though it's a salary plus distributions, it's really just a job with a lot of risk. Right. Never once did I go, hey, this thing's an asset that I might have other options to do with. And 
Well, what's your here's the here's the comment here's the the comment that I want to hear your thoughts on is I believe that people can hold both of those in the same space to have the passion and the devotion to growing a business with care while also knowing that it's a valuable business and thinking with that exit, knowing that you're not selling your soul. Cause I, I hear John over this last decade, it's like, Oh, I'm never going to sell this because I would, that's like, that's being, that's sinning against my company company. It's my baby and I'm never going to give it up. What do, what do you say to people or yourself back in the day when you hear something like that? You know, what I would say is, I mean, if this is a business that's transferable, you know, if you can pass it down to your children, great. Don't ever give it up. But, you know, you can't really, it's hard to practice. It's hard to pass a, it's called a PLLC, a professional limited liability company. And, you know, we turn into a C-Corp. It's hard. You can't really pass that to a non-physician child. And so at some point, just pragmatism says, okay, well, how am I get rid of this thing? Even if it's, even if you don't want to sell it, I mean, what are you, you going to do? It's, it is an asset. And at some point, you know, if you die with an intact, this has to go through probate. So, okay, be pragmatic. What what can you do to, to, to move the thing on to someone else? And maybe you do an, an ESOP, an employee stock option, you sell to the employees. That's great. But you, you should have those, like I said, you should have those thoughts early. To, to do it right, you want to set it up right early. So I wrote this book called Entrepreneurs Rx. And part of the book is spend it do what I didn't do, which is spend time at the outset and get all the ducks in a row right out of the gate. And then when the time comes, you'll have all this work already done and this thought process of how it's going to work before you even consider turning it over or selling it or exiting. It's having options, right? And and like, there's this whole concept of like, if you think about real estate, you're not going to go put a bunch of money into a commercial building if you don't know that it's going to grow value or not, right? (laughs) You think about like us as entrepreneurs, we're investing all this time, money, and energy into our business, having no idea what it's doing on on the back end of that. And so crazy, John, I've had multiple physicians come through our training. One of them was, had 50 employees, a couple of physicians assistants, and then a bunch of, you know, it was a a total pyramid. And it's like, well, this company is only worth this much because what are you going to do with it? You know what I mean? You've hopefully been making enough income over the years to save for retirement. And I'm sure you get that kind of conversations and you replace, you know, the medical world, the healthcare world with any other business owner. It's the same concept. How do you get that concept through to physicians that they need to be working on other, the business well, in that facet or in that kind of fashion? Well, it's first off, I can't tell you how many physicians I've talked to over the years who are my age or older, who are like, I can't retire. I, I, I haven't saved any money. Dude, you're 60. <laughs> I mean, how, how have you not saved money? I mean, I have people say, Hey, can you, can you, you know, can I get paid early this month? Because I, you know, I'm not going to make my, I'm not going to make some bills. And these are, you know, EM physicians. And I just, I'm literally incredulous. Like what you've been working for 30 years in a really pretty well paying profession. Like where's the money? And so I think a lot of people, I think a lot of physicians, well, I think a lot of business owners in general really business owners don't really have that plan ahead for the quote rainy day. And, you know, one of the reasons I went to law school was I said, I saw people who were EM physicians who hurt their hand or their shoulder or their ankle, and they couldn't practice emergency medicine anymore. Like, well, now what do you do? I mean, you're a one trick pony select. I mean, yeah, you may be (laughs) smart and you may be, you can do other stuff, but you can't do the same with the same income. And so for me, I thought, well, this would be good to help defend physicians in front of the medical board and help them with contract issues. I know how they think. And so I went to law school to do that, thinking, well, at some point, 
you know, if I ever get injured or hurt and I can't practice emergency medicine, which hopefully I'll never stop, but at least I have a fallback position and I can practice law. I, I'm, that's so f- funny that you say that because I think about that, like when in uh, our training, we're talking about company specific risk and it's a lot of times the owner, the owner's relationships or whatever it might be. But in the medical world, it's literally your hand <laughs> or something that specific where if that's broken or messed up, like that's it. You're you totally got, yeah, yeah. It's, not, it's not just you showing yeah. up. It's your hand too. It's so crazy. Yeah. Same with pilot. Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing. It's, you might be great, but if you can't fly any longer, you're, you know, going to be teaching, you know, simulators someplace, which is okay. It's just your lifestyle is going to have to change. And so, you know, I always kind of counsel and coach people to, you know, have that fallback. And for me, when I, when I was, I realized in emergency medicine, if I'm not working, I'm not making money. Um, so what can I do to make money? I always say, what can I do to make money while I'm sleeping? Well, one was I'd, I'd start my own emergency medicine group. So other people were working and I'd get some small margin off there. Or I'd start an urgent care where it wasn't me seeing patients. I was just running the business. So that was kind of always my MO as far as what can I do to make money when I'm not actually, you know, gloves on, hands bloody. Isn't it so crazy? I mean, I talk to attorneys these days who make, you know, 800 bucks an hour and they don't like the, I mean, they're stuck. Like, yeah, you're making a bunch of money, but you literally can't think about anything besides exchanging time for for money. And it's like, there's no way to get off of that hamster wheel once you start. Yep, totally true. In in, in the medical world, John, I'm super curious because we don't spend a ton of time in our in our practice or with our fractional CFO space, a lot working specifically with uh, the medical world. Have some people that have gone through the trainings because it's agnostic for industries, but on the on the specific of the actual in in in, in the inner guts of the M and A, what what's going on? What are you seeing as far as like how valuations like is it? There's a lot of private equity firms come into it. Is it the big, the big, uh, the medical groups going in and buying people? I've been watching multiples from the kind of the hearsay go up, just like everything else. But what have you been seeing? You know, I think first off, I think it's going to start trending down. I, you're right. Last year and the year before, there was definitely a huge uptick. You know, COVID certainly definitely hurt some businesses. A lot of medical businesses, it it, it helped. We saw the valuations go up and the consolidation play, but we also saw a lot of people exiting. You know, we always talk about the, you know, the great, the great exodus, the great resignation. And I think with a lot of healthcare providers who, again, were, you know, north of 50, you know, said, you know, tapping out, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to work through this pandemic because it was a little rough for a period of time. Uh, and it was actually really rough for a lot mm-hmm. of folks in a period of time. And so there was certainly the consolidation play in trying to get, on a roll up and people are getting multiples of, you know, probably six to eight, six to nine on EBITDA. If they were a, you know, a digital business, they may have been getting, you know, eight to 12 on, on revenue multiple. But I, I, I already see that starting to come down. You know, if you look at Teladoc where it was trading last year at this time versus now, I think it's about 50% mm-hmm. of their value mm-hmm. uh, is, is evaporated. So what, what is your passion that you, I mean, you, what gets you up and it gets you excited? Because, you know, in one of your bio uh, lines, it says you've never worked a day in your life. And I, and I can relate because it's so fun. And when you're having fun, like, but what gets you up as it relates to business and medicine and like the change that you want to make? So a long time ago, I was a resident. And this, I think this will answer your question. Um, I took care of this guy who was probably 70-ish and he was dying and, and he knew he was dying. In fact, this was going to be his last day on earth. And I remember kind of studying his face and he was conscious and he had this look on his face and I, and I called it the, if only look. 
And it was this look of this total dejected sadness mm. look. And I, and I, and this may all be in my head and made up, but I just intuitively thought this guy is thinking of all his misses. He's thinking of all of his things he did not do that he should have or could have done and wished he had. And I thought I will be damned if I'm laying on my deathbed with that look on my face. You know, I heard this quote, the definition of hell is on your deathbed. You meet the person you could have become. That was that guy. And I thought that ain't going to be me. So I'm going to be put on the gas until I'm Pablo Picasso the day before I die. I'm in my studio at 96 and, and, and drop dead. That's really what gets me up in the morning. And, and I mean, believe me, I have a lot of things just excite the crap out of me. I opened a venture capital firm and I'm excited to work with entrepreneurs. That's exciting. I love to fly. That definitely gets me up in the morning. So it's, but it's really the answer to your question is the first one. How do you know whether you're on track or off track or whether you're living in the flow or you need to course correct? I think of the ease of which things seem to come to you. Uh, when that happens, you know, I feel like, oh my gosh, I'm definitely in flow. It's like things, you know, I'll be running or I'll be in the shower and someone will pop into my head and I'll be like, oh my God, this all makes sense. I've got it. And boom, boom, boom. Or all of a sudden you get, you know, I always call putting on a new pair of glasses. All of a sudden you, you have this metaphorical glasses you're putting on and you see something like, Jesus was staring right in my face. How did I, how did I miss it? I think when you're in flow, I think those things just literally come to you. And when you're not, you're just scratching and clawing and, and you're probably not in the right, right space or, or something's not, there's something out of alignment. So that, that out of the alignment, that feeling that you're just kind of talking about, I think a lot of people that I've come across, tons and hundreds have been on this show where they get that feeling, but they didn't do all the prep work with their company. And then they're like, I want to pivot and or some, now all this makes sense. And I've been trying to scratch it. Now I want this but I've got this entire business that I don't know what to do with. And now I don't know how to get out of it. Where in like the, the progression of your business, did you go, I think it's time to sell or it's time to start entertaining offers or like where, where in a business cycle and you're the couple big ones that you've exited, like where, where did that come to you and how did you go about making that decision? So I knew, so me and was a virtual medicine company that we sold to Walmart in June, last June. And I realized that about, Oh, 2018, 2019, that we were going to get outspent, that our competitors had raised in the hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, and we had raised six. And we had a decent product. We had 60,000 visits a year. We we're in all 50 states, but we were going to get crushed soon. And at that point, I, you know, I, I had to hire the CEO and I said, let's, let's see what's out there. And then, you know, we went through this process with one group, it didn't go anywhere. They were, they were not the best investment bankers, put a pause on it, hired um, Wells Fargo, and they did a phenomenal job for us. And then COVID hit. And so with COVID, you know, our volume was, you know, chugging along, you know, telemedicine was okay. And then all of a sudden, oh my God, telemedicine for must have. <laughs> yes. And it just totally took off. And so, you know, during that process, we went through the this process with Walmart, who was kind of late to the game that we had, I think, three or four other groups that we were buying or that were vying to buy us. And then Walmart came along and said, look, 
you know, we'll, we'll catch up. And, and they did. So it was a market, it was a market pressure. And was it in any of your other ventures? Has it been something where like you had mentioned one uh, when you had sold to the PE firm, it was, I'm not a good operator. Is there other things as far as like, I'm not having as much fun anymore, or I want to take chips off the table or like, what, what are other factors that you were weighing? Well, I mean, and certainly with NextCare, there were some chips off the table at the time because, you know, we, you know, I was the, you know, we had very little outside capital in it. You know, I triple mortgaged our house and, you know, I was working tons of shifts in the emergency department to cover payroll for the urgent cares. And, you know, finally about 2000, you know, five, six, seven after school, I was like, I need to slow down here a little bit and take a little bit off the table because it was just, it, it was highly leveraged and a lot of risk. And so that, that was a deciding factor for that. For other businesses, it just turned out to be, hey, I, you know, I'm interested in this business. I'll make an offer on it. And the offer was acceptable. That's awesome. It, so I want to go into value creation and, and how you like multiple expansion. And I want to layer on a concept, John, before we kind of get into some of your potential examples is there's this concept that we like to bring up in our training of intrinsic financial value think about discounted cash but just purely based on the risk like it's an investor looking at an asset that says what's the risk of this asset we're going to place a value on it then there's what we call transaction or strategic value which is you're going to get a premium because the strategic buyer is going to gobble you up eliminate your competition and they're going to pay a premium but it always starts at that financial somehow there's a baseline when you look back at the different ventures or the different industry different kind of uh, versions of the healthcare industry that you've been in what are things that you have seen that you go, that was so worth the investment and the effort because the value creation that it created on the back end was really worth it? Like, you know, reoccurring revenue is the easy one or client concentration that people talk about, but specifically from the spaces that you've been in, are there things that you've done that you go totally worth it? Yeah, well, some of them have been simply the smart choice about hiring the right people and making sure they fit our culture. So that that's a gimme um, and maybe or, or a give in. But some of the things that you know we've done, or some things we've really worked towards, is what can we do that's different and so forward leaning that it would be tough to replicate, and this will create intrinsic value. So one of them was this was one of those flow moments. So never forget sitting at our sitting at the table eating dinner, and I thought of you know a waiting room in a clinic is totally wasted space, right? There's no revenue produced in a waiting room. In fact, when people walk in the waiting room and they see it filled with patients, they're like, oh crap, I'm not going to wait. And they close the door and leave. <laughs> revenue deterrent. So we, yeah, it's totally deterrent. So we need to get rid of, rid of the waiting room. So I thought, wouldn't it be, and this is how I always, I always start off these conversations, you know, wouldn't it be cool? So wouldn't it be cool if you could have someone register and wait at home and then you call them up 10 minutes before the room is ready in the clinic? And I said, yeah, wait at home. Wahoo. This would be cool. This is Wahoo. Wait at home or office. And so we developed this process where people would go online and they would put in all this data, not only demographic data, but the stuff that they were, you know, I'm, I'm coughing, I'm this, I'm that. And they'd fill out the whole first half of the encounter with all their historical data. Because as a provider taking this data and typing up totally wasted time once the patient can do it at home and you just review and say, oh, let me ask you another question about that. Okay, great. Got it. And so by the time the patients got into the clinic, because we would call them or we would text them, you knew half their information. And then so wouldn't it be cool if based on that information, we had a battery of tests that were appropriate that we could order. So if a, you know, if a woman said it burns when I urinate, okay, if they're between you know, 13 and 50, we're going to get a urinary, we're going to get a pregnancy test on them and a UA on them, a urinalysis on them. Great. So by the time the provider got in the room, 
the x-rays would be done, the labs would be done, the history would be done, and the provider would do an exam and be like, okay, we're done. And so we really shortened the course of treatment down, took people out of the waiting room, and put them right back in the exam room. So our waiting rooms were always empty, and then we started shrinking the waiting rooms. And so that was one of those processes where it just made total sense to me. And then we started dispensing medications from the urgent care, so they didn't have to go to Walgreens or CVS and wait for them. We just said, oh, here's your antibiotics. So, and so we tried to make it a one-stop shop. So interesting. One comment is your, your executives and your spouse must be like when you're taking showers and running, you, you, you got ideas. You know, <laughs> I can relate. <laughs> Another business idea. Let's do it, right? Yeah. I've, I've actually slowed down and, and now I just don't tell people when I have them. <laughs> um, but yeah, for a while I was like, hey, wouldn't it be great? Like, no, God, no more, please. John, just no more runs, John. Please just zip it. Um, yeah. So... When you, when you think it's super helpful now or example too, because those are things that make you, like you said, it builds intrinsic value. And like, that was, that was a great example, John, because if there's intrinsic value that makes the cash flow more sustainable, the like that's your baseline multiple. And then the strategic multi valuation that might be higher is additive, right? Versus uh, so many people, John, I don't know if you've come across this where like, they're just banking on that strategic multiple without doing all the hard work. They're hoping that they, when they wake up and they're 60, that someone should just take this off their hands because of what they did. And I think what you are saying right. is you're building that intrinsic value that helps. Any, um, anything else that you, well, I know what I was going to ask is you mentioned multiple times that you're a data guy when you're, when you were managing it and especially as you're scaling up to 60 locations and then adding all these other ventures on, you have to be looking at very high level KPIs that, pyramid down, right? From a hierarchy, like what, what were some of the data points that you were looking at where you could see the pulse of how all these things are working with, with, on the highest level? So I, I went back and, and did a six segment black belt at the ASU School of Engineering because I wanted to be able to extract. And so we had a pretty sophisticated electronic health record way, way early. So we started being able to pull data out of that. And we started doing something called the balanced scorecard. And we looked at, we looked at five physicians, we had, let's say 100 physicians. We looked at 17 data points of how they were practicing medicine, you know, what patients thought of them, how patients ranked them, what their NPS scores were, what their average charge was. I mean, just literally 17 things. And every, and every month we'd send this out to them. And it was not anonymized. They had their name on it. And then we'd, they'd be green, yellow, red. And so the top 30% would be green, next 30 yellow, you get the point. And so every month we'd have the scorecard and these people would be like, oh crap, I'm you know, low yellow or I'm, or I'm red. And so it was this constant march of improvement <laughs> that, that the providers, and it wasn't about how much they build, it was about, it was about a, a bunch of quality metrics and efficiency metrics, but then also the data capture. Did they, did they document appropriately on the on the medical, they document appropriately on the medical record. And so that, that's how we use our data with this balanced scorecard. And you know, I'm a firm believer in you know, what's, what gets measured gets managed. And so when I'd have these discussions with providers, it would always be, you know, totally understand, but let me show you the data. Let me show you your peer group. Super, super cool. So some of these examples that you're talking about that build intrinsic value also make your organizations that you've built unique, which also probably make you proud. And where I'm going with this, John, is when someone goes to sell their business, I think there's the money aspect, which if people don't know how M&A works, the difference between a private equity firm, strategic buyer, or a strategic buyer that's backed by a PE firm, or however many Russian dolls you're going to stack on top of this, is trying to align what 
their what they want out of that business, like the Wahoo or like how you're managing your physicians is a special thing, right? And then when you sell, all of that could go and just be different or change. How did you align those type of things that you cared about or might've cared about with the money and the potential buyers? So for example, with, with Walmart, the thing that impressed me so much about Walmart, now I had probably been in a Walmart store six times in my life before we started interacting with them. You know, there's not one super close to me and I just was just didn't go in Walmart. And so I wasn't skeptical about interacting with them, but I didn't really have much knowledge base. But what I learned when I started interacting with them is these guys really care. I mean, they were super impressive and they were humble as hell. Hmm. And so instantly I'm like, all right, they're going to be good stewards of this business. And what are they into it for? Well, they want to basically bring telehealth to all their communities and all these people, many of whom are in rural areas that don't have access to healthcare. I mean, and that literally, I live for this stuff. I work on the reservations all the time mm-hmm. uh, in the middle of, you know, in the middle of nowhere. And so their values lined up with what I, with my vision for this business, had I had enough money to scale it like it should be scaled. And, and that really is what sold me with Walmart. And then I talked to the CEO of Walmart, this guy named John Furnow, who started off his career loading trucks at Walmart cool. when he was 16, and now he's the cool. CEO of North America. And, and he was this totally normal, down-to-earth, great guy. And then his vision of where Walmart was going, I'm like, all right, I can get on board. And even though in a million years, if you would have asked me, you know, is Walmart going to be a potential acquirer? I'd be like, Walmart? No, of course not. <laughs> but then you meet, you know, Cheryl Pigas, who runs their healthcare division, and like, yeah, she is cool as hell. Hmm. And so th- that's really what sold it for me. And it wasn't even a it wasn't even a close race because they were so far ahead of the curve as far as their vision of what they wanted to bring to healthcare in the United States. They they trounced that. I mean, and it really and it wasn't a money issue at all. It was like, nope, I can line up behind these people. They they are rock stars. That's super cool and a great example, John, because I think the the one of the the hi- things I wanted to highlight with this is a lot of times, like the, the concepts that I like to help people understand is if you grow a more valuable business that accomplish like the valuation, the financial valuation, you can get what you want. You could do an ESOP, you could, you know, you could argue to a PE firm that the discounted cash flow is it and they can't beat you down anymore. But then there's so there's the money aspect, but then there's what are you gonna do with all of this that I created that you can have complete misalignment on? And I see it all day long. And what I want for people is to be able to have like five buyers against each other. And then there's the money and then there's what they're going to do for it. And them to be able to articulate, I'm going to sell, let's end this example. I'm going to sell to Walmart for this money and I'm going to take 5 million less because of these reasons, but it's because of these reasons. And I'm willing to do that versus these people who might do this with it. And I'm not sure. And they're not good people. And I don't know if you came across that example, any of the, if you had a, a, a stumble into that kind of scenario, but I think so many times because people don't know how the M&A world works, they fixate on that purchase price, forgetting all of the the stuff that's really important. Yeah, I, I could literally could not have said it better. You know, the old saying is everybody's money is green. <laughs> and I, I think at the end of the day that what you just described was vastly more important. I mean, you you have to, you have to at the end of the deal, you have to feel like you were paid a fair price. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things that no one's happy. You know, you want to get more, they want to pay you less. But at the end of the day, you're able to look your investors in the eye and say, you know, I did well by you. Not only am I, not only did we create value for you, for your investment, but you'll also get to be a legacy of this business that now is going to expand and do X. 
But you're right. If you buy it to a, you know, if you sell it to a firm that has really no interest and they, they don't care about what happens to the patients, all they care about is another roll up and then an exit in two years. Great. But what have you really accomplished? You know, for us, you know, for Walmart, Amazon was was really promoting their telehealth capabilities. Walmart had to catch up to them in this. And and now they've, you know, just totally blown by them. Yeah, it's a, it, it's such an interesting dynamic because the moment you understand all this, in my belief, the moment you understand all this technical details, then you can actually spend time on the stuff we all care about, which is the emotions, right? It's like, now we, now we understand that we can push this over here so we can actually talk about the real stuff that we're all going to care about. And I think about, especially in the, the physicians and the medical community, I mean, it's people's lives are touching patients that are truly changing people's lives. It's not like, oh, I just cleaned your house, right? I mean, like this, these are like very intimate services where who you sell to could really dramatically change other people's lives. How, how do you coach other physicians or other business owners that are physicians on how to think about these kind of things? Well, you know, first off, I kind of remind them why they went into medicine in the first place. And so, um, you know, I always tell a story, you know, if you're, you know, I get as much satisfaction in emergency medicine as saving somebody's life, which, you know, you do occasionally versus buying a homeless guy a pair of shoes. Because at the end of the day, you're helping somebody who may be having the worst day of their life. And even some small act of kindness makes a huge difference when you're down and getting kicked in the gutter, somebody who helps you up, that's all it takes. And so if you remind people, like, why did you go into medicine in the first place? To help people, to, to be compassionate, to provide the best care possible. Um, and then, okay, think about your business now. And if that's your business, who's going to be a good steward for that? You know, you don't want somebody who's only interested in the bottom line. That doesn't work because at the end of the day, that failed. They have to be interested in the patient. And, you know, our mantra, you know, that I have a kind of a large staffing company now that we staff these providers all over the country. And our mantra is, look, I'll take great care of you, provider. You got to take great care of the patient. That's our, that's our promise to each other. I'll, you know, I, I, my arms around you, your arms around the patient. And I think at the end of the day, if you put the patient first as a, as a healthcare provider, you will always win. You know, you'll always, not always, but the, the business in has a much general, better shot yeah, in, in general, yeah, yeah, yeah. And are you familiar with conscious capitalism? I, I probably understand. The yeah, it, hopefully it's self-explanatory. It, and I yeah. wasn't trying to trying to, to, to get you anything. There's a, I, I read this book, Conscious Capitalism, like four or five years ago, John, and my listeners probably get sick of me talking about it. Because like, it's this book that essentially you can make a lot of money and do a lot of good if you're focused on the right, all the stakeholders. So instead of the Milton Friedman shareholder at all costs, it's like, hey, there are, they, they call it wind of the sixth power where it's the community, it's the customers, it's the vendors, it's the shareholders. It's like, hey, there's a lot of people involved in this entire thing. We can also make money if we focus on growing value. What's well, the reason I bring this up is, and, and I'm curious because I can tell you got a huge heart and you want to make it work for everybody specifically based on what you just said is there's this thing that's been happening in the US. There's this uh, book called Makers and Takers. They call it the financialization of America. We're like, it's just, you know, just financial engineering, like nonstop. And the healthcare world has specifically been victim to this. Every, every industry has. I mean, airlines have made more money hedging oil than they have seats over the last 10 years, just to give an example. In your space of health healthcare, with what your mission is, seems like completely out of the norm compared to all of the financialization that's happening. How do you stay true to what you're trying to do of the good? And how do how do like how what is the what's going on and how can you maintain that? You know, for me, well, first off, it's you know, I think if you approach things with a construct of gratitude, 
things lights a lot easier. So I always say every day I walk out of the emergency department, and I mean every day, you know, I walk out on my own steam, breathe oxygen on my own, look at the sky, have a roof over my head. Compared to my patients, you know, they're my worst day is probably a hundred times better than their best day. So knowing that, like, gosh, how blessed and lucky am I? Okay, so you have that construct right away that you're grateful for things that good and bad, you're grateful for things that happen to you. And then you really focus on, I really believe if you take care of your people, of your employees, if it's a true culture of, of, of empathy and compassion, like you said, it wins, you know, it, it wins. And that does include your vendors. And it, of course, it includes the patients. They're at the epicenter of all this. You know, I, this business next year, I remember we hired this guy and we were probably a thousand employees at this time. And so I tried to, I tried to interview a lot of people. Um, tried to interview everybody at first, but now then a lot of people. <laughs> oh, that's quite a few. Guy, yeah, who was uh, he was being hired for director of marketing, and I always ask, how do you improve yourself? What do you do to better yourself? What do you do to better others? And he had this blank look on his face. I said, okay, well, and I love to read. Last book you read? What was the last book you read? And he kind of goes, can't think of it. I said, we had to read a book. Like he goes, well, yeah, in college. Yeah, it's like forty. You haven't read a book since college? No. All right. I mean, for me, that was the yeah. end of the interview. Yeah. <laughs> Turned back to the team and said, guys, I, I don't want to micromanage you. I would not hire this guy. But maybe you see something I don't, but my vote's no. Now, what I should have said is my vote's no, and sadly today, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I like everybody, and if I don't like you, you're probably a mass murderer. That's kind of how I think. <laughs> so they hired the guy, and he literally was the proverbial one bad apple. He, he created so much problems. He was misogynistic and all that stuff, and it took him he lasted longer than I did, and it took him about another year to get him out of there. But he was the one person who almost sunk the culture, and I'll never forget that lesson. You have to let people, the only people you should let in the family, on the team, are people who are fit your culture. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the best way to take care of each other is to make sure everybody who gets in is really meant to do that work with this group of people. It's so interesting because the... Your examples and how much you cared about culture. I mean, I think about even the the doctor's visits we've been having with my kids or my I've had, you know, I'm in and out of the doctors with my family members and stuff. And like when it's an anomaly that it was a good experience with a physician is a weird thing. It's just and that's where I was going. Like it, it, like you you and your organizations must stick out, which means you have to be that much more intentional to protect what you build because of how much you could potentially be susceptible to like the standards, which are, you know, the, the services and the standards are not as where they should, probably should be. Well, Tony, and even if you don't think that way, okay, that's fine. But then there's a pragmatism as well. The physicians who get sued are the ones where, who, who they're pissing patients off. The patients perceive they don't care about them. They don't communicate well. And, you know, knock on wood, I've never been sued. And it's not because I'm one of the Mayo brothers just because I treat people kindly. I mean, I can almost, you know, there was one guy that I could not in 30 years that I could, that I could not form a bond with. And he was a, he was a neo-Nazi with a swastika on his head and a swastika on his penis. <laughs> I'm not kidding. That's not I'll give you that one. And that I, doesn't count. And I'm like, hey, this, is, this is the one guy that I will not be able to have any sort of bond with because I, his construct and mine are diametrically opposed. Oh, that's good. Like, like you said, if I don't, I like everybody and if I don't like them, they're probably a mass murderer. There's a, there's a chance you were somewhat correct in that one. <laughs> Yeah, I, he, he could have done. So when you, as we're rounding, uh, rounding the corner here, John, going back to you being in that bed and you not wanting to be the one that's regretting everything, like that story you told, 
what do you want everything to have unfolded? Like, what do you want to be thinking when you're sitting on your death? But not to go too morbid, but I know you do a lot with it. But I think there's a lot to be said about reversing back into your eulogy. I was told that at an early age, and it's just meant a lot to me. I'm curious in what your thoughts are. So, you know, there's this Hunter Thompson quote that I've always loved. It's life's, and I'll, I'm going to butcher it, but it's life's not meant to arrive at the grave in a well-preserved body, but to slide in sideways, totally worn out, covered with mud, yelling, holy shit, what a ride. And I want to be thinking of that quote with a smile on my face, thinking, you know what, I didn't leave any stone unturned. I did not waste, you know, whatever you believe in, my God-given talents and providence and luck and love and everything else. Uh, I did not waste anything and not take anything for granted. And realistically, I can't say that now. You know, I'll do my best. But I want to be able, at least on my deathbed, say, that was a hell of a ride. That's awesome. And I'm sideways muddy and bruised up and it was worth it. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. John, this has Everybody. been so much fun. I have two more questions for you. Uh, one is I want to know what your definition of intentional is because it's the name of the show and it's a word that we've gravitated a lot towards. So what does the word intentional mean for you? It means projecting out into the future and building and then taking the steps and doing the work necessary to achieve the outcome that you've foreseen in the future. It means being pragmatic and realistic and optimistic, but all towards a goal of something you've seen in the future. John, I can only imagine that all of the investors and executives and the people you've worked with in the past have enjoyed it a lot. I've I've enjoyed this conversation. And uh, for the listeners that want to learn more about you, your books, your practice, where, where can everybody find you? Go to johnshufeltmd.com or there's an Accelerant Ventures website. It's just up. It's called, it's an Accelerant is, X-C-E-L-L-A-R-A-N-T, accelerantventures.com. It's a new venture capital. We're doing health tech venture capital. So I'm really excited about that. There's going to be definitely a market for that. I don't see that uh, going away anytime soon. John, thanks so much for coming on the show. This has actually been just a ton of fun. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ryan. I really enjoyed it. Great job. I really enjoyed that interview with John. I hope you did as well. He was doing things on purpose and he still is. And I think my biggest takeaway is I, I don't want to be that person on the deathbed, on my deathbed, wondering about all the what ifs. And I wish I could us or the regrets. And I think everybody feels the exact same way. And I'm unbelievably convinced now that it's not just about the money. It's about how sustainable you can continue your lifestyle by creating wealth, making an impact and then making and. uh and having fun along the way. And living in that intersection is what we like to call as intentional growth. And I think John is doing an amazing job at that. And he's constantly growing and evolving. And that whole story he said about someone not reading a book since they were 40, I can relate because if someone's not growing, I mean, come on, we all have to be learning and understanding how the world's changing so we can continue to make intentional decisions to stay in the intersection of creating wealth, enjoying work, and having a lot of fun. So hope you enjoyed that interview with John. Go check out uh, our Intentional Growth training. If you have not, you can learn about how all these things work, how to get clear on what you want and grow a valuable business so that way you can continue living in that intersection of those three components. Thanks, everybody, and I will see you next week.